0: Good morning everyone. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and get it out and I certainly hope you do because this will be a sermon with a heavy dose of Bible in it. So go ahead and go to Luke chapter 1 with me this morning. Luke chapter 1 and we're going to start reading in Luke chapter 1. If you are visiting here with us, we're certainly happy that you're here. You're in a good place this morning and we hope that you'll take out a Bible and help and help us study along this morning as we try to get God's Word in our hearts. In Luke chapter 1, as we begin with verse number 1, the Bible says this, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word." It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. What happens, what happens whenever you rewatch a movie? What happens whenever you rewatch a movie? Well, if you're like me, if you rewatch a movie multiple times, then it's very likely that you're going to catch some things that you've never caught before. That is exactly what happens every time Shawn Michael and I rewatch watch Avengers Endgame. Every time Shawn Michael and I re-watch Avengers Endgame, I always notice some things that I've never noticed before. I either notice someone's costume lying on a table or in a corner somewhere, or I'll notice a cameo from someone from a previous movie, or I'll notice a line someone says that is designed to pay tribute to something from the comic book. I always catch new things every time I rewatch Avengers Endgame, and I really hope that that is something that will happen to you as you engage in our 2022 daily Bible reading plan. As Brother Dale mentioned in his remarks last Sunday this year, our daily Bible reading plan will have us exploring the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. We're going to read Luke and we're going to read Acts. You see, there are 52 weeks in 2022. And there are also 52 combined chapters in Luke and Acts. This means that we're going to read one chapter a week from this Bible reading plan. But we're going to read that one chapter every single day each week. We're going to engage in what is called an immersion Bible reading plan. The reason why this is called an immersion Bible reading plan is because we're really going to immerse ourselves in the reading. We're really going to bury ourselves in this reading. We're going to read one chapter a week, five days each week. We're going to do that because we're hoping to catch some new things in these chapters that we've never caught before. The book of Luke and the book of Acts. Are perfect books to do this kind of reading with not only because they consist of 52 chapters but also because they fit together perfectly they fit together perfectly like a hand and a glove you see they are both written by the same man Luke the beloved physician who's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament in fact the more appropriate name for these books It's not really the book of Luke and the book of Acts, but really they should be called Luke part one and Luke part two. You see, Acts is really the sequel to the book of Luke. Acts is really Luke part two. You see, so often we say that the apostle Paul wrote about half of the New Testament, but that's not really correct. That's not really 100% accurate. You see, while Paul wrote about half of the books of the New Testament, the fact of the matter is he didn't write half of the volume of the New Testament. Luke's writings actually more closely accomplished that goal. Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer he wrote 700 more verses than John and about a hundred more verses than Paul he wrote about 30% of the New Testament brothers and sisters that's a huge chunk that's a lot of scripture that's a lot of writing that is even more writing than what was done by the Apostle Paul you see without these two books Luke and Acts We will be missing about a third of our New Testament. The book of Luke and the book of Acts make up about a third of the New Testament. They make up a big portion of our Bibles. But even beyond that, even beyond the fact that Luke and Acts make up a significant portion of our Bibles, let me give you some other reasons as to why we should want to immerse ourselves in these two books this year. And let's just start with the book of Luke. Let me begin by suggesting this morning that we should really want to start this week immersing ourselves in the book of Luke because the book of Luke contains, well, it contains verifiable history. It contains verifiable history. I mean, that is exactly what Luke tells us. And the first four verses of this gospel, going back to the first four verses of this gospel, I want you to notice how Luke tells us there that the reason why he wrote this gospel was so that a man named Theophilus, and I'll have some things to say about Theophilus and your Bible reading summaries that'll come out today, but in these verses, Luke tells us that the reason why he wrote this gospel was so that a man named Theophilus could know the exact truth about the things he had been taught. Some of your translations say that the reason why Luke wrote this gospel was so that Theophilus could be certain about the truth he had been taught. I really like that language. I I really like that Luke says that. I like that Luke says that because it shows us what this gospel is all about. The gospel of Luke It's all about increasing our faith. It's all about increasing our faith in Jesus. It's all about giving us reasonable evidence to believe in Jesus. Luke says he wrote this gospel so that Theophilus could know for certain about the truth he had been taught. In verse number two, Luke also tells us that he worked hard at putting this gospel together. In verse two, he says that in addition to being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he also talked to eyewitnesses. He also talked to servants of the word. That would be men like the apostles. That would be men like like Peter and Paul and James and John. In verse 2, Luke says, I worked hard at putting this gospel together. I talked to many eyewitnesses. And then in verse 3, he says that he investigated everything carefully from the beginning. He says he wrote these things out for us in consecutive order. All that language shows us that Luke wants his work here to be treated as history. He he wants us to know that he did the work and the study and the research of a true historian. That is why throughout this book, we find him mentioning over and over again the names of rulers and places and events. It is why we find him mentioning the days of Herod, king of Judea in chapter one and verse five and the days of Caesar Augustus in chapter 2 and verse 1, and the days of a governor named Corinius in chapter 2 and verse number 2. It is also why he mentions this census that was taken up during the time of the first century in the Roman Empire, and it's also why he mentions the names of prominent Jews who were alive during the time of the birth of Jesus. Luke tells us all this stuff because he wants us to know and be certain That the gospel that we believe is true. It is true. It is not made up. It is not fabricated. It is not a work of fiction. It is, in fact, real. It is real world history that could be verified by the people living during that time. It can also be verified by people living in our time today. We need to immerse ourselves in Luke this year because Luke's work contains verifiable history. But we also need to immerse ourselves in this reading because it talks about the work of Jesus. It talks about the work of our master and our king. It talks about the work that he did while he was here on this earth. Go in your Bible now to Acts chapter 1. Because Luke makes this clear in Acts chapter 1. Remember I told you that the book of Acts is really the sequel to the gospel of Luke. Acts should really be called Luke part 2. But in Acts chapter 1 in verse 1, the Bible says this, and we see this point crystal clear in Acts 1 in verse 1, where Luke begins the book of Acts by saying these words. He says the first account... The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice how this book begins by talking about the first account Luke composed. What was that? What's the first account that he composed? Well, we know what the first account was. The first account is the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the first account that was composed by Luke. Luke says that the purpose of his first account, the purpose of the gospel of Luke was to tell us about all that Jesus did and taught. That means that when we immerse ourselves in Luke this year, we're going to be reading about the life of Jesus. We're going to be reading about the work of Jesus. We're going to be reading about the things that the most important person in the history of the world did 2,000 years ago. We're going to read about his miraculous birth. We're going to read about some of the things that took place in his childhood. We're going to read about his baptism. We're going to read about the time in which he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And he was tempted by the devil. We're also going to read about, read about those miracles. We're going to read about the supernatural things that he did that so many eyewitnesses saw things like give sight to the blind. And heal people who were stricken with leprosy and cast demons out of people and control the weather and even raise the dead. We're going to read a lot about the miracles of Jesus this year. And we're also going to read a lot about his preaching. We're going to read a lot about his ministry. In fact, Jesus, Galilean ministry makes up about six chapters in this book from Luke chapter four all the way through Luke chapter nine. We read about the preaching and the teaching that Jesus did in Galilee. We read about powerful sermons that we need to hear today. Sermons about discipleship, sermons about righteous living and repentance and money and greed and so many other things. This year as we read Luke, we're gonna read about the work and the life of Jesus and we're also gonna read about a, a, a lot of Jesus' parables. There are a lot of parables of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, the Gospel of Luke contains some parables that are not found in the other Gospels. For example, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost boy or the prodigal son, that's only found in Luke chapter 15. And the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, that's only found in Luke chapter 10. And the parables of the unjust judge and the Pharisee and the tax collector and the rich fool and the unjust steward, Those are only found in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke focuses a lot on Jesus' parables, and it also focuses a lot on Jesus' prayers. It talks a lot about the prayer life of Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of Luke focuses more on Jesus' prayer life than any Of the other Gospels. Almost all of the major events that take place in the life of Jesus from the book of Luke begin with prayer. I want you to watch for that. Most of the major events in Jesus life you can read about in Luke begin with prayer. Before Jesus picked 12 apostles in Luke 6, the Bible says he prayed all night before he was transfigured on the mountain. In Luke chapter 9, the Bible says he was praying, and even after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, in Luke chapter 3, Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us about how Jesus was praying before the Holy Spirit came upon him. Luke focuses more on Jesus' prayer life than any of the other Gospels. It is unique in that way, and it's also unique because it puts a positive light on Gentiles. The book of Luke is unique because it talks so much about how God loves people even like us, people who are not Jewish, people who come from the other nations. I mean, since Luke is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, it seems he goes out of his way to describe the instances in which Jesus told stories. And he says so many good things about people who are not Jewish. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, who's the good guy in that story? It's not Jews. It's not the Jewish priest. It's not the Levite. No, the good guy in that story is a Samaritan. And in Luke chapter 17, where he talks about how Jesus healed 10 lepers, Remember, the only one who was commended by Jesus for expressing some gratitude for his healing was not the nine Jewish men, but it was the Samaritan man. And then in Luke chapter 4, a chapter we've studied in our Bible classes, why did Jesus almost get killed in his hometown? Why did Jesus almost get thrown off of a cliff in Nazareth, where part of it was because he, he spoke about the time when God blessed the Gentiles During the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, Luke's gospel is very unique because it focuses so much on God's love for Gentiles. Luke is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he makes it very clear that God loved people even like him. He loves the Gentiles, and it's also unique because it talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. A lot of Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, there are more references to the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other Gospels. There are more than 17 references to the Holy Spirit just in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke focuses more on the Holy Spirit than any of the other Gospels. And it also focuses a lot on how Jesus used women. We got a lot of women disciples in the room this morning. And for the women disciples in the room this morning, if you want a gospel, if you want a gospel that will tell you just how much women were involved in the ministry of Jesus, then I got good news for you. We're reading the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke is for you. You see, in the gospel of Luke, you're going to see that in addition to people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, You also got Mary Magdalene mentioned a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And you got Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. And you got this widow who is committed by Jesus because of her giving. And you got people like Joanna and Susanna and so many other anonymous women disciples who serve God and they serve Jesus and they even help finance the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke has a lot to say about how Jesus used women in his ministry. And we also need to say something about Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. You see, about a third of this book, about a third of the Gospel of Luke, focuses on Jesus' final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, by the time Jesus makes it to Jerusalem, In Luke chapter 19, and he's betrayed, as Brian was talking about this morning, and arrested. One of the things Luke really emphasizes is the innocence of Jesus. Luke and his gospel really emphasizes how everybody knew that Jesus was an innocent man. He was an innocent man who was dying on the cross. The Sanhedrin council knew that. The Pharisees, they knew that. The Sadducees knew that. Pilate knew that. Herod knew that. Even one of the thieves who was dying with Jesus and a Roman centurion announced loud and clear that they knew that Jesus was innocent. These are just a few of the things, just a few of the wonderful things that we're going to read about when we immerse ourselves in the Gospel of Luke this year But not only are we going to immerse ourselves in Luke. I need to say some things about the book of Acts. In addition to Luke, we're also going to immerse ourselves in the book of Acts. You see, whereas Luke part one was about the work that Jesus did and accomplished while he was here on this earth. Well, the book of Acts, Luke part two, well, it's about the ongoing work of Jesus through his people, which is the church. The book of Luke is about the work that Jesus did while he was on the earth, and the book of Acts is about the work that Jesus accomplished through his people who are the church. Whereas Luke, Luke tells us about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we get to Acts, we see that the Jews who thought that they had done away with Jesus when they killed him, well, they were wrong about that. They didn't do away with Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see, we see God overrides. He overrides their work. He overrules their work. He declares that Jesus was not a fraud. He was not an imposter, but he was exactly who he claimed to be. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. You see, in Acts chapter 1, Luke picks up right where he left off, in Luke chapter 24, by presenting Jesus alive and him commanding his people to go out into the world and continue his work. Are you still in Acts chapter 1? Look at verse number 8. In Acts 1 and verse number 8, before Jesus... Before Jesus ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, in Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus tells his people, he tells his disciples, his apostles, which you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I submit that this verse right here is the thesis the thesis statement for the book of Acts. This verse is what Acts is all about. In Acts, we find the church, disciples of Jesus Christ, doing exactly what that verse says. We find them taking the gospel to Jerusalem, and then it goes throughout Judea, and then it goes through Samaria, and then it even goes to the remotest parts of the earth. This begins as early as Acts 2 and verse 41. Follow me here, please. Acts 2 and verse 41, after Peter preaches the gospel in Jerusalem. The gospel goes to Jerusalem first. And it says in Acts 2 and verse 41, So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Drop down to verse 47. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number or adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. Notice how people were being added to the church every single day. Look at Acts 4 verse 4. And Acts 4 verse 4, it says, So many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now, the word men there is not being used generically. It's not being used to talk about mankind. Instead, that word is being used to talk about adult males. There were at least 5,000 adult males in the church by the time you get here. Now, you and I both know that usually in the church, you got more women than you have men. That means she could have had as many as 15,000 people in Jerusalem who are Christians at this time. 5,000 adult men in the church, not counting the women and the children. Now look at Acts 5 and verse 14. In Acts 5 and verse 14 it says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes, notice, multitudes of men and women were constantly, constantly being added to their number. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In Acts 6 and verse 1 it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, they continued to increase in number. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, even some of the priests, were becoming obedient to the faith. Look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. And Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, after Saul of Tarsus begins this great persecution against the church, it says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Isn't that what Jesus said was going to happen? The gospel goes to Jerusalem. The church is persecuted in Jerusalem and now it's going to Samaria. Philip, this Christian Philip, he's taking the gospel to Samaria. When you go down in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26, you find Philip even preaching the gospel to a man from Ethiopia, an Ethiopian treasurer, an Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 9, we find the gospel going to Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church. He's now converted. In Acts chapter 10, you find the gospel going to the Gentiles with the household of Cornelius, and then beginning in Acts 13, and going all the way to the end of the book, you find Saul of Tarsus, who is now going by the Apostle Paul. Well, he takes the gospel beyond the land of Israel. He takes it to countries in Asia and Europe. You see, as we immerse ourselves, as we immerse ourselves in the book of Acts this year, we're going to read about Jesus Carrying out his work through his church. We're going to read about Jesus doing his work through his people, which is his kingdom, the church. We're going to see from the book of Acts exactly what God wants a church to do. We're going to see what kind of work he wants them to do. We're going to see what God wants a church to be focused on. We're going to see that God doesn't want a church to be involved in recreation and politics and basketball and softball and karate and building soup kitchens to feed the homeless people on the street. No, from the book of Acts, we're going to see that God wants the church involved in evangelism. He wants them spreading the gospel, taking spiritual food, to the people in the world, in the book of Acts, we're going to see. We're going to see the church preaching the gospel, and we're going to see them doing that despite being persecuted, despite experiencing great opposition from those who even killed Jesus at least 16 times, at least 16 times in the book of Acts, we read about the work of the gospel being opposed by the Jews. At least five times in Acts, we read about the gospel being scandalized with false accusations at least two times in Acts. In Acts 16 and in Acts 19, we find the gospel being in conflict with the financial interest of sinners. And as early as Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are beaten by a Philippian jailer, Well, there we read about the gospel causing Christians to receive bad treatment from those in Roman authority. And then in one of the final verses of Acts, look over Acts 28 and verse 24. Because in Acts 28 and verse 24, we find a great verse, I believe, that really represents how people during that time responded to the gospel and how people in our time even respond to the gospel. And Acts 28 in verse 24 as the apostle Paul is in a Roman jail cell waiting to to appear before Caesar. In Acts 28 in verse 24, he was preaching the gospel and it says some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Doesn't that just sum up perfectly how people respond to the gospel? Doesn't that sum up perfectly how people were responding to the gospel 2,000 years ago? Doesn't Doesn't it sum up perfectly how people respond to the gospel when we preach it today? Sometimes people are going to be persuaded and they're going to become Christians and other times, well, they're going to flat out reject it. In the book of Acts, we're going to read about Christians preaching the gospel despite being persecuted, and we're also going to read a lot about the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, so much Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Whereas the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke makes 17 references to the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts makes more than 50. There are more than 50 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And Acts, Luke makes it very clear that God is working through his church at this time, and he's working through them through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a big role in the book of Acts, and so does prayer. So a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see that the early Christians, they were serious about prayer. They were serious about praying together as a spiritual family. In Acts chapter 4, we find the early Christians coming together to pray after they had been persecuted by the Sanhedrin council. In Acts chapter 6 and verse number 6, we find them praying together before appointing some qualified men to help take care of the wills in the church. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, we find them praying after the apostle Peter had been locked up in prison. And then in Acts 13 and verse 13, we find them praying some more before sending Paul and Barnabas off on a missionary journey. In the book of Acts, we find a lot of times, a lot of times, when the early Christians were praying, and I hope you'll notice that, and I also hope you'll notice all the internal conflicts in the book of Acts. Lots of internal conflicts in the book of Acts. You see, just like, just like we have problems among brethren in churches today, Just like there are times when we don't see eye to eye, when we don't get along, when we fuss, when we fight, when we have disagreements. Well, the brethren in the early church 2,000 years ago, they had that stuff going on too. They had fusses, they had fights, they had disagreements. In Acts chapter 6, we find problems or a problem that they dealt with in regards to widows that were being overlooked in the church. In Acts chapter 11, we find the church dealing with problems of race and racism among the Jews and the Gentiles. That wouldn't be something we're dealing with today, right? And then in Acts chapter 15, we find disagreement between Paul and Barnabas with regards as to whether or not they should take John Mark on a second preaching journey. The early brethren had problems. They had conflicts. They had disagreements, they had fusses, they had fights, but one thing they never allowed their problems to do was hinder God's work. They never put their disagreements over God's work. They never put them wanting to get their way on everything over God's work. Whenever they had a disagreement in judgment, whenever they had a problem, whenever they had a fuss or even a fight, you know what they did? They came together, they talked about it, they prayed about it, they solved the problem, and they kept doing God's work. It wasn't about getting their way on everything. It was about glorifying God first and foremost. It was about putting God first, not their egos, not the things that they personally wanted to do. In the book of Acts, we're going to see exactly God wants a church to handle problems. But let me close with this. Let me close very quickly by giving you four ways. Four ways in which I hope that you're challenged by this reading. If you're still not motivated yet, let me close by giving you four key lessons. Four key lessons that I hope you will really appreciate from this particular reading. First, as you immerse yourself, and Luke and Acts this year, I hope you will be challenged to see that the gospel is truly for all. It is truly for all. It is truly for Jews and Gentiles. It is for men, and it is for women. It is for white people, and it's for black people, and it's for Native American people and Hispanic people, and Asian people, and if we got some pink, green, and purple people, well, guess what? The gospel's for them, too. It's for the homeless people right here on the street. It's for homosexuals. It's for people who consider themselves to be transgender. It's for thieves. It's for drunkards. It's for atheists, agnostics. It's even for murderers. The gospel is the good news of salvation for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. Everybody has an opportunity to become a child of God if they repent and humble themselves to the will of God. That's what Jesus tells us in Luke, the 19th chapter in verse number 10, when Jesus was being criticized. Because he was going to spend time in the home of a chief tax collector who no one liked named Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19 and verse number 9, Jesus said to the people, Today salvation has come to this house because he too, this man too, is also a son of Abraham. Now watch verse 10, for the son of man... The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What is Jesus saying there? What Jesus there is saying that he's the savior of all. He's the savior, not just for some people, but he's the savior of all people. He has a message designed to save all sinners who are willing to submit themselves to the will of God. As you read these books this year, I hope you will see that the gospel is for all, and I hope you also see that the gospel has been entrusted to us. It's been entrusted to us. It's been entrusted to me and you. You see, God could have chosen a million different ways to save people, couldn't you? God could have chosen a million different ways to get the gospel to people. I mean, if God wanted to, he could just open up the sky right now. And speak directly from the sky with his loud, booming voice and call people to obey the gospel. God could do that if he wanted to. God could get the gospel out to people through talking frogs and talking talking dogs and cats and talking monkeys. God could get the gospel to people in a million different ways. But how did he decide to do it? He decided to do it through us. He decided to do it. Through regular, regular and ordinary people, people who are part of his church, people who are disciples, people who are Christians, people who have been redeemed and saved by the blood of his son. I like what Jesus says in Luke, the 10th chapter, before sending the disciples out on the limited commission in Luke, chapter 10, and verse two, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Notice how there Jesus talks about two things. He talks about the harvest. Well, what's the harvest? Well, the harvest is the world. The the harvest is the world or a world full of sinners, people who are lost in their sins, people who need to hear the gospel, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Well, who are the laborers? The laborers are us. It's Christians. It's people who are part of his kingdom or his church. God, Jesus says, has decided to use us to save souls. He's decided to use us to preach the gospel. He's decided to use us to help people come into his kingdom. We're going to see Christians doing that firsthand in the book of Acts. And Acts, we're going to see that the gospel has been entrusted to us, and we're also going to see the gospel is powerful. Oh, yes, the gospel is powerful. The gospel It's so powerful that it's able to change even the most wicked sinner into a righteous child of God. It was powerful enough to transform Saul of Tarsus from a fierce persecutor of the church to a righteous preacher of the gospel. It was powerful enough to convert 3,000 Jews, many of whom were responsible for killing Jesus, into to Christians in Acts chapter 2, it was even powerful enough to convert people in the city of Corinth, in the city of Athens, in the city of Philippi, in the city of Thessalonica. It's even powerful enough to convert people right here in the valley, right here in Phoenix, Arizona. Even today, the gospel is still capable of doing exactly what Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 16. In Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I hope you'll take away from our reading that the gospel is powerful. And then finally, I hope you also take away that the gospel can't be stopped. The gospel cannot be stopped. It couldn't be stopped in the first century Roman Empire. No matter how many disciples were imprisoned or beaten or stoned or murdered, the gospel continued to spread like wildfire in the first century, and so many souls were won for the glory of God. The Jews couldn't stop the gospel The Romans couldn't stop the gospel. Satan couldn't stop the gospel. And guess what? The same is true today. I don't care how much our culture gets away from God. I don't care who's on the Supreme Court. I don't care which political parties control Washington. I don't care which laws are passed or what persecutions we have to face as the people of God. No matter what goes on in this country today, tomorrow, or a thousand years from now, the gospel will always prevail. The gospel will always be taught. The gospel will always be preached. Honest souls will always be won for the glory of God. That was true during the time of the first century Roman Empire. And that's also going to be true in our time today. And so I hope you're excited. Hope you're excited about the Bible reading. Hope you'll get a copy of the schedule. You can get one in the lobby this morning before you leave. Or you can go on our website. And Brother Brian has put that link on the website as well. I hope you will read the assigned chapter at least five times a week. And as you do that, I hope that you will discover some things that you have never seen before. I hope you'll see that this Bible reading is designed to increase your faith. It's designed to increase your faith in Jesus. It's designed to increase your faith in God. It is designed to motivate you to get your hand to the plow and start working hard for the Lord. In fact, maybe that's something you need to begin doing this morning. Maybe there's someone here this morning you need you need to obey the gospel and get started working for the Lord. If so, then we certainly would love to help you with that. If we need to study with you this morning, I'd be more than happy to do that. Or if you need to confess your faith in Christ, repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Whatever spiritual needs you may have, make it known at this time. Come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing.